in prayer as we get into uh, the word today. Uh, it's a it's a great it's a it's a weighty um, topic, you know, today. But it, I believe it's going to be good for us, good for our soul to hear and uh, be encouraged with and challenged. Elohei Avraham, Elohei Yitzhak, Elohei Yaakov, Hashem Yeshua Mishikenu, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and God of Jacob, in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. God, we come to you, Lord, so grateful for all that you are, for all that you do, God, for your mercy toward us, your people. And Abba, I pray, God, for an impartation today of faith and strength and grace to be upon, Lord, this Kehillah. Father, that you would ebb into us that of which you are, that you would encourage us where we're discouraged, that you would strengthen us where we're weak. Father, that you would speak the life of heaven into our spirit, God, to energize us to live for you for another week. So, Father, we thank you and give you praise and glory. B'Shem Yeshua, and everyone said, Amen. Um, I have to say, it was my first time I had chicken and waffles in Louisville, Kentucky, right? I figured I was in Rome, I'll do as the Romans. Eh. It's not a bagel with locks, I'll tell you that, but uh, it was new, it was a new experience. <laughs> um, I also want to start by thanking the leadership team for all their ministry while uh, our family was on vacation. Um, a big thank you to Gary. Um, from what I heard was an outstanding word of encouragement. <laughs> also to Evan for leading worship and ushering in the presence of God. Amen. As well as the rest of the leadership team and all the ministries that went on without a hitch and for you who came. Because guess what? It's not us and you, it's us (laughs) worshiping God collectively as a congregation. So uh, thank you for coming to allow things to flow seamlessly in our absence. Thank you all. Today we are continuing in our series looking at the seven I am statements of Yeshua found in the book of Yochanan. And we ran into another one today. Did you notice that? As we did our new covenant reading. When Yeshua said, I am, what happened? They fell back because the very power and presence and the weightiness of who he is, the I am of the Tanakh, just struck them and had an impact on their physical bodies. And today we're going to look at another one found in Yochanan chapter 11. So let's get right into the text. Yochanan 11. I believe I am starting down at verse uh, 17. So when Yeshua arrived, he discovered that Lazarus had been in the tomb already for four days. Say four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many of the Judeans had come to Martha and Miriam to console them about their brother. When Martha heard that Yeshua was coming, she went out to meet him. But Miriam sat in the house. Martha said to Yeshua, Master, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But I know even now that whatever you may ask of God, he will give you. 
Yeshua said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know, he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Yeshua said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. You know what he said to her? I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even if he dies, shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She says to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, Ben Elohim, who has come into the world. After she said this, she left and secretly told her sister, Miriam, the teacher is here and he is calling for you. As soon as Miriam heard, she quickly got up and was coming to him. Now Yeshua had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The Judeans who were with Miriam in the house and comforting her, seeing how quickly she got up and went out, followed her. They thought that she was going to the tomb to weep there. So when Miriam came to where Yeshua was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Master, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Yeshua saw her weeping and the Judeans who came with her weeping, he was deeply troubled in spirit and himself agitated. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, master, they tell him. Yeshua wept. Shortest verse in the Bible. If you ever want to say you know a verse in the Bible, memorize Yeshua wept, period. Then you got a verse memorized, a whole sentence. (laughs) So the Judeans said, see how he loved him. Just a question, why does he weep? when he knows he will resurrect them. It's the compassion of God. But some of them said, couldn't this one who opened the eyes of the blind man have also kept this man from dying? So Yeshua, again deeply troubled within himself, comes to the tomb. It was a cave and the stone was lying against it. Yeshua says, roll away the stone. Martha, the dead man's sister, said to him, Master, by this time... Stinks. It's been four days. Yeshua said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they rolled away the stone. Yeshua lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know I knew that you always hear me, but because of this crowd standing around, I said it, so that you may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. He who had been dead four days, stinking, rotting, came out, wrapped in burial clothes, binding his hands and feet with a cloth over his face, And Yeshua tells them, cut him loose and let him go. That's a powerful, powerful, powerful glimpse into the I am that Yeshua is, right? God in the flesh operating amongst men. Matter of fact, all of the Besorah of Yochanan really is about proving the deity of Mashiach. And it starts off in the very first line of the first chapter. 
So what do we get from this story? I am the resurrection and the life. Several things. And the first, I think, is common to all of us who are human. Wave to me if you're human. That means you share what I'm going to talk about right now. And it's simply this. What are we to do at the times when life stinks? Right? She said, man, he stinks. Literally, life stunk. But life also stinks figuratively. At times. Right? I don't know if maybe it's just me, but my life isn't always just rosy. Hard times, troubled times, difficult times, challenging times. Good times, happy times. But what what are we to do when life stinks? In this case, lost a loved one, a brother. Life stinks. It says, Martha, the dead man's sister, said to him, Master, by this time he stinks. Four days he's dead. So for Martha, Miriam, and definitely for Lazarus, this situation stinks both literally in a physical sense and in a soulish, spiritual sense. This is a bad thing. No one's happy. Matter of fact, the comforters aren't happy. No one's happy in the scene. This is a bad scene. This is one of those things that you walk into and you say, this stinks. Stinks if you're going through it. It stinks if you're you know, associated with the people. It stinks if you're just watching. It stinks. And maybe you're going through a situation that you would say, God, this stinks. So we pick up our story in verse 17 with Yeshua being late. He's late. Four days late to be exact, at least in the eyes of his followers. I mean, he was so close, right? Jerusalem, uh, two miles away. How, How fast could you walk two miles Right? Not you, Rebecca. You'll be there in a minute. Okay, we'll be. <laughs> the rest of us will take, you know, maybe, maybe it's a 30 minute walk for us. But just two miles. And he's four days late and he had warning. Not only that, Lazarus was a friend. And it could look like Yeshua puts her off. As a matter of fact, after he got the word on Lazarus, he stays two extra days in Jerusalem before he leaves. And it could almost look like uh, he's not interested in helping out. Have you ever, in the midst of your stinky situation of life, could sometimes think that perhaps God is not concerned about you? Sure he can. But I want to let you know that that is not how the story ends. It is a perception that we as human beings often have, but that perception is wrong. Clearly wrong, but yet it's very real, right, in our emotions. Now, I know we could all relate. 
And how many of us have ever felt or currently feel like Yeshua is late or has at least uh, missed a few opportunities of being early? Of course. There's probably things you've been praying on for years and years. Where are you? Or maybe we think he's indifferent toward our concerns and our pain. And not unlike us, when he appears to be really late, both Miriam and Martha remind him about it. Have you ever reminded God that he's late? I have. They said, Martha said, Yeshua, Master, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. In other words, let me translate, Lord, if you would have done your job, I wouldn't be in pain. Right? And Miriam did the same thing. It says, so when Miriam came to where Yeshua was, she saw him fell at his feet, and the first thing she says to him, not hi, Lord, not I love you, Lord, is this. Master, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Lord, you didn't do your job. Where were you? And it didn't end there. The crowd also chimed in and put in their two shekels. Right? They say and have something to say about him as well and his performance in this situation. But some of them said, couldn't this one, the one who opened the blind man's eyes, have also kept this man from dying? Could he have done his job? This miracle worker, this Messiah, could he have just simply done his job? What's up with that? Come on, we've said it or thought it. God, couldn't you have spared me some pain and sorrows and aggravation and sorrow? Right? And we have a perception that's wrong. We think God's indifferent. We think God doesn't care. Some even think perhaps God gets a little joy in seeing us suffer. I want to tell you that perception is all wrong. See, it's pretty safe to say that Yeshua was walking in, and he helped create this, right, by even waiting a little longer, into a group of people that were discouraged, thoroughly, and disappointed. They were no doubt expecting a different result. They were perhaps expecting to send word he would come and save the day, as he has done time and time and time again. But that's not the result they got. And they were faced with an opportunity on how to respond. There were broken and devastated hearts all around. Set the scene. You know, Jewish mourning, the whole community was around these two women. And Yeshua is walking into an emotionally charged, to say the least, situation. And now they're accusing him. You're not doing your job. You're not doing your job. 
I mean, you did all these great things and you couldn't do this. But Yeshua being Yeshua, not ruffled, he's not offended, he's not upset. Because he knows what he's going to do. And if we, in Acts 14.22, it says, urging them, the Talmudim, to stick with what they had begun to believe and not quit. Hear that again. God is speaking this to some of you. Urging you to stick with what you had begun to believe and not quit making it clear to them that it wouldn't be easy. Anyone signing up for the kingdom of God has to go through plenty of hard times. I want to encourage you that God is speaking to you, you who perhaps have contemplating quitting because you find yourself maybe in a situation like these two women disappointed and discouraged, saying to God, you're late. God, you didn't get it done. God, where's your power? And he wants to say to you, don't quit believing. You're going to have to go through some hard times. After all, the Son of God himself went through plenty of hard times. He's gonna, he says you're going to have to go through some hard times, but don't let that throw you off. Don't let that cause your faith and belief to waver. The one thing they did, even in their disappointment to the credit of Miriam and Martha, is they went to Yeshua. I want to tell you that's huge because a lot of us in our times of despair and mourning and even anger toward God if we are real, we get angry at God, don't we, sometimes. We recoil from his presence. We pull back. We say, you know what, God, if you're not going to help me... Who needs that? I want to tell you and I want to urge you, don't do it. Don't buy into that lie. Don't be tempted to pull back and draw away from the only source of hope that you have in troubled times. He wants you to know today that he knows you're going to go through some hard times, get some hard knocks, get beat up a time or two. He knew that of Rav Shaul. He knew he'd be stoned and shipwrecked and bitten and persecuted. But he wants you to know, don't quit believing. Don't shrink back in your faith. Don't do it. Don't allow the enemy of our souls to talk you into a wrong perception of who he is. You see, their disappointment did not nullify their faith and trust in Messiah. And we must do the same even in our disappointment. We must go to him and ultimately place our trust, our hope, and our faith squarely on him. They kept their faith intact. Their questions, their doubts in that moment didn't totally negate their faith because they said, I believe. 
There are many times in our lives as believers that we will go through trying times, discouraging things. We must do what these women did in their despair. They went to Yeshua and they got into his presence and spoke to him their hearts. The truth of the matter, Lazarus was still dead. Life still stunk. But they went to him all the same. This is what we must learn to do. Trust me, maybe you're not there yet, but God wants you to get to that place. Some people run from him and even fall away from God. Sad to say. Even in the scripture, some fell away from him because it was too hard. I want to remind you of this. So often, we romanticize about our old life before Messiah. Friend, if you think life in Messiah is hard, try life without him. With zero hope in times of pain. With zero encouragement from a body of believers. Don't make that mistake. Because if we do, if we make that mistake, it ensures that we will miss out on the miracle that God has coming your way. He had a great miracle coming their way. Yeah, it was a miracle not in their timing. It was a miracle perhaps overdue in their opinion. It was a miracle that really couldn't be done because, you know, in Jewish tradition... They say that the spirit hovers around the body. That's why four days is significant for three days. And after that, resurrection is impossible. Contrary to what might be expected, someone said, Malcolm Mudridge said this, contrary to what might be expected, I look back on experiences that at the time seemed especially devastating and painful with particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I have learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my experience has been through affliction and not through happiness. That might be a tough one to swallow, but I think if we're honest with ourselves, we could see the truth in that. We grow through pain. And not that God causes the pain. God didn't really cause any of this situation to happen. But he certainly did use it to bring growth into the situation, to breathe life, to do something wonderful out of something very, very terrible. I want to give you five quick things 
that these times of struggle do for us. First, difficulties often provide us with greater opportunities. There was no opportunity for resurrection if he's alive and well. Secondly, struggles can promote our spiritual maturity. I will guarantee you this. Martha and Miriam were not the same after this experience than before. Absolutely transforming, not to mention Lazarus. Thirdly, problems or thirdly, dilemmas we overcome prove our integrity. Right? When the going gets tough, right? The tough get going. But we know that that's not always the case, right? We know when the going gets tough, there's a good portion of people that just peel off and say, no thanks, too hard for me. Same in following God. There were many who just peeled off saying, this is too hard, this is too tough, this is too rough, it's too challenging. I'll just peel off and take what I think is an easier road. In reality, it's not easier, but in the moment, they peel off. Dilemmas we overcome produce integrity. You know, how about when someone comes to you and is challenging you to keep the word that you gave, the promise that you made to them that you said you'd do? Because don't we all do it? We make a promise, and then at the time of delivery, you never feel like doing it. Right? Isn't that always the case? But you know what integrity says? doesn't matter how difficult. I'm going to honor what I said I'll do. Fourthly, problems produce a sense of dependence. I don't know about you. When I have a problem, I'm leaning on the Lord big time. Because problems are problems because they're bigger than us or else they won't be a problem. If I could take care of it myself, is it a problem? If I have the money in the bank, it's not a problem. Write a check. If I have the physical skills to do something, not a problem. Just do it. Problems are problems for the very fact is that they are beyond us. Problems that we go through often involve other people that we have no control over. It's a problem. So what do we do? We lean on the Lord. It makes us dependent upon him. And fifthly, tribulations prepare our hearts for ministry. I'm going to tell you this. There is no one in ministry worth their salt, no one who's been in ministry for more than two hours that hasn't gone through tribulation, struggle, hardship, who hasn't been accused falsely, even like Messiah. You know what, here he's being accused, this is mild, you know, to to Yeshua. He's saying this is like uh, pablum. All you're saying is I'm not doing my job. The folks down the road, they're saying I have a devil in me. The Messiah, God in the flesh, the great I am, they're telling me I'm the devil. Right? It's those tribulations and overcoming them and enduring them that prepare our hearts for ministry. And in the midst of this painful and tragic happening, right, this horrible scene, 
Yeshua says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even if he dies, shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? I'm asking you, do you believe this? The Greek word, the Greek word is Anastasia, resurrection. But it's funny. This is what it means. It means to come back to life after, say after, having once died. So how do you get resurrection life? To come back to life, to live again, to be resurrected means that something's dead. So to participate in resurrection life, one must be dead. That's the bad news. And I'll tell you this. Hear it with the heart in which I'm delivered because I'm saying it to me. Some of us never experience resurrection life because we have never died to ourselves. In this context, it is physical death, but it applies to spiritual life and joy as well. The truth is, before you can be resurrected, you must die. So in the economy of God, death comes before life. That's my second point. I only have two points today. Yes, I want to get you to that bagel. I do. I'm working hard getting you to that bagel. But this is more important, so let's stay here for a second. Death comes before life. Doesn't God always blows your mind? Well, I thought you were born first. And then comes life. God says, no, death precedes life. Dying to self, someone wrote, is never portrayed in Scripture as something optional in the life of a believer. And I want to say this, a commitment to Yeshua is in all reality a radical commitment to lose your life in exchange for his. This is the problem with the West. Is we want just a little cream in our coffee. You know what I'm saying? Just enough to sweeten it up a little bit and move on. That is not at all the concept in the Burj Khadashah. And I'll tell you what, do you, if we think that just putting a little cream in the coffee gets it done, it doesn't. When we just don't die to ourselves, or if we die to 50% of ourselves, or if we die to the things we want to die to, and don't die to the ones that God is asking us to die to, what happens is we end up being more miserable because we're not dead to ourselves to really get the full life of the power of God and the resurrection power of God. And yet we're miserable because of the old nature that we allow to remain. Talmudim. Say Talmudim. That's you and me. Or it should be. We are called Talmudim. Right? Followers. Learners. 
should demonstrate a strong desire and conviction to die to the old man and walk in newness of life. We can take that even further and say, unless we die to ourselves, we cannot and will not experience the resurrection power of God. There is too much doubt and unbelief in the body of Messiah. There is a lack of discipleship, which means a lack of prayer, a lack of the word, a lack of worship, and ultimately a lack of faith. I'm going to go on a little, little rabbit trail. It's a designed rabbit trail. So I'm just going to and come right back. Bear with me. This question was prompted by something I heard when I was away this past week. Where have all the Talmudim gone? Here's a question for you. Who is discipling you? For most people, they're doing it themselves, which the scripture doesn't recommend. And that's why God has given the Kahila replete with spiritual leadership for the express purpose of discipling people. Whether you are a brand new believer or 40 years in the Lord, you need to be discipled. Do you know that this service that most people come to is really not a discipleship service? It's more exhortational. We celebrate on Shabbat the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Needed, absolutely. A piece of the discipleship puzzle. But it's really not discipleship. You know where discipleship really takes place is usually in the midweek times. When we're teaching the word of God, for instance, there are folks today who feel more comfortable sharing their faith because they allowed themselves to be discipled in sharing their faith with both Jewish people and non-Jewish people. That's a huge thing because the scripture says go out into all the world and not get people to pray prayers, not get people to attend Shabbat service, but to make Talmudim of all nations. I have a question. Are you better at sharing your faith today than when a new believer? Are you better better able to connect with God through prayer than at first? Do you have a grasp of the scriptures better today than when you first came to believe? This happens through discipleship. And discipleship is a choice that each one of us make to say, Lord, I want to be discipled. And we put ourselves under the teaching that God has ordained. Listen, discipleship isn't glamorous. So when people know you're speaking on prayer, they might opt out, not because they're great at prayer, but because speaking on prayer doesn't sound as attractive as deciphering the Lord's return from the book of Revelation. (sighs) Deciphering the keys of the book of Revelation. 
come and learn when the Lord will return. I will give you hints from the Greek and the Hebrew and the Hebrew and the Greek. And we will nail down the day and the hour by which you will come. Yet, not the day and the hour, because that would be error, but around the day and the hour, the season of his return. Oh, people love that. Not that they could pray for five minutes. Not because they really have a grasp on the word and are, and are able to encourage themselves when they're discouraged. Do you want to know? That's what discipleship is about. It's about, could you imagine your 10-year-old son says, Mom, I'm hungry. And like most moms, like I know in my house, help yourself. Refrigerator is right there. And of course, someone at 10, you would expect, could go into the refrigerator, grab the bread, the peanut butter, the jelly, make themselves a little snack and eat it, right? Wouldn't it be kind of weird? Mommy, could you open the refrigerator door for me? Could you put the... It's unnatural because someone of that age should be able to feed themselves. The same thing is true in discipleship. You should be able to go. When you're discouraged and feeling the attack of hell on your emotions, on your mind, on your spirit, where you know that, man, you're just going through something rough, you should be able to open the pages of the scripture and get into the word and say, God, encourage my soul. God, I'm going to meditate and I'm going to, I'm going to speak the word of God until I get happy in you. Yes, life still may stink. He still may be dead. He still may be in the tomb. But no, I'm encouraged that God is going to look at my situation and say, come forth. Because I encourage myself in the word of God. I know how to do it because I'm a Talmudim of Yeshua. That's what discipleship's about. When, man, I just feel under it, well, you know what? I'm going to go and I'm going to start to pray until I get a breakthrough. I'm going to lift up my voice and say, God, you're awesome and mighty. Do you think every time I get up here, I'm in a good mood? No, there's sometimes that I stand behind that and I feel oppressed too, but this is what I purpose in my spirit. God, I know you are worthy no matter what's going on in my life. And I'm going to lift up my voice with everything that's in you. I told him this morning, God, I'm going to go and I'm going to give you 110% until my voice is raw. I'm going to praise you and speak and I'm going to declare your goodness. And you know, when we do that, we've learned to do that. Things don't get us down. Not to say that things don't come to get us down and not to say that they don't initially set us back for a moment or two, but we get our bearings because we have been discipled. We know what's going on and then we know how to push back and we know how to break through and we know how to get the victory. But I'll tell you what, where have all the disciples gone? No one wants to be discipled. They're doing it on their own and where are they doing it? They're usually not doing it. If I were to ask you how many of you have regular devotions every day where you're meeting with God in the word and prayer, worshiping God, experiencing his presence, you probably, listen, I don't want to show of hands. The percentage would be low. I know it. Guess what? That could change today. It should change today. You should want it to change. 
Because guess what? When you're in a situation like these ladies, can I tell you something that came out of the meetings that we're at? And I don't mean this to, to, to frighten anyone, but the leadership of the Kehilot in America are seriously concerned about what might take place in our country in a year's time. The congregations, I mean, the the schools that we have in California, they have a bill in California looking to take away the tax-exempt status of believing schools, colleges. Do you know what that would, in effect, do? Close them down. And I will tell you this, if the tax-exempt status was taken away from the congregations in America, know what that would essentially do? That would force us to be essentially an underground movement with no ability to have open public worship. And leaders of major denominations are seriously concerned that this is not a fantasy, it's not scare talk, it is a real possibility. But guess what? He also said, don't be dismayed. Begin to pray. Begin to seek the Lord. But you know what? If we're not discipled, some of us have a hard time getting through a normal day of work. How in the world can we concern ourselves with such lofty things? Friends, this is why this is an hour that we can't afford not to be a disciple of God. We live in serious times. It just is the truth. It's the reality. That shouldn't make us scared or nervous, but it should drive us to the things that really matter most. Yochanan 12.24 says, Yes, indeed, I tell you that unless a grain of wheat that falls to the ground dies. I'm back from the rabbit trail. But I'll tell you what, it's, it is germane to our topic because real disciples are dead to themselves. They are. We're not in ministry for our glory, God forbid. We're in ministry in God's service. He is the boss. We are the servants. Unless it dies. It says just a grain. It stays just a grain. But if it dies, it produces a big harvest. If it dies, it produces a harvest. Even in our story, there is no resurrection of Lazarus. Unless he's dead. Dead. Really dead. Stinking dead. The powerful testimony of God's power could only be displayed if this were the case. Many of us say we long for God to show up and do extraordinary things in our lives. Yet, can we say that we, like Lazarus, are dead, dead, really dead? Can we? According to post-Talmudic tractate compiled in the 8th century, it says this. as a story. Like we like to tell. Jewish people like to tell stories. 
a.k.a. the Mashiach, a.k.a. the rabbis. So we go out to the cemetery and examine the dead to see if, there are, to see if they are still alive and haven't been buried by mistake. That would be a problem. For a period of three days, and do not fear being suspected of engaging in the ways of the Amorites, i.e. superstitious practices. Once a man who had been buried, this is a story, once a man who had been buried was examined to be found alive. He lived for 25 years more, and then he died. Another such person lived and had five children before he died. The title of this tractate is the plural of simcha or simchot, and it's a euphorism for mourning. Martha's remark confirms then that she has given up all hope that her brother is still alive. Because he's really dead. The tractate is, is being make sure they're dead. Well, in this case, he's dead. I pose the question to you and to me. Are you dead? To yourself? To your flesh? Matthew 16 says, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. That sounds bad, doesn't it? I don't like that. But it gets better. It says, but. Don't you love that? God always says, yeah, but. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's what we don't get. We stop halfway through the verse. Oh my gosh, enough with the lose the life stuff. God, I suppose this message, Rabbi, is going to be about losing my life. Kind of. But it's really more about the latter half of the verse. It's finding life. And not just life, but resurrection life. Life that's on steroids. Life that's really great. Life that overcomes. Life that isn't dependent upon every circumstance that comes our way. I have a good day, I feel good. I have a bad day, I feel bad. The boss treats me good, I'm stoked. If he treats me mean, I'm depressed. No, it's a life that sails through this world. No matter what the situation. That's the good news. C.S. Lewis, his literary demon, Screwtape, if you ever read the screw tape letters, has something insightful to say. He is telling his young nephew that humans, this is what the, the demon in the, in, the, in the writing is saying. He says that humans rarely pray for the thing God wants them to pray for. They simply want enough grace to see them through some moment or time of trouble. They conjure up a vision of the future they want and appeal for that outcome. They persist in wrapping their anxious hands around life's steering wheel as if it's going to work this time if only they clutch it more tightly. The most difficult prayer for us to voice is not my will, but yours be done. Our conversations with God regularly leapfrog over our intellectual resolve not to ask for stuff, don't they? Oh, I can tell you how many times I went to God. I'm not going to ask for anything in this prayer session. And then all of a sudden, you know, after three or four or five minutes, you start the request, start flowing, you know. 
And it lands squarely on the bargaining and pleading table. And we start pleading with God. The best we seem to be able to do as humans is to arrive at a compromise between what we know to be right intellectually and the howl of protest that lies within us. What is he saying? We are not very good at dying to ourselves. But I want to tell you, true disciples learn to die themselves. Friend, if you could learn to die to yourself, your life will improve. Because God's life is much better. His plan for your life, even though it might be filled with ups and downs and valleys and mountaintops, is far greater than the one you will navigate yourself. And that is what you have to believe. That is what you have to begin to operate. It is far greater than the one you are trying to navigate yourself. Here's three verses. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his tree of sacrifice, or basically take up his death daily and follow me. In Galatians, and those who belong to Messiah Yeshua have put to death, past tense, the flesh with its passions and desires. What is the flesh? The flesh refers to our will, and our desires independent of God's input and influence. That's our flesh. It's our will and our desires independent of God's will and his influence. And then the last one, Galatians 2.20, which we all know. I have been put to death with Messiah. It It is no longer I who live, but Messiah lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved, him, loved me and gave himself for me. It's not I who live. I'm dead with him. That's what everyone who went through the mikvah, that's what that was symbolic of. That you died to him. Your old self was buried and you were raised to newness of life. And guys, don't look at me like I just gave you bad news the truth is I gave you good news God is wanting you to get it I know it sounds counterintuitive die to get life yeah die to gain greater life than you currently have you see if we believe in him not based on our circumstance, but on him and what he has already proven to us. You see, God has done all that he needs to do. He has provided for us his own death for our sake. How many people would do that for you? Do you know anyone in this world currently that would die for you? Willingly. And better yet, the real question is, do you know one of your enemies that would die for you? Absolutely not. The scripture says we were at enmity with God when he came. We were his enemy because of our sinful ways. But yet he came willingly to die for you and for me. With that being the case. He's proven by providing and purchasing our atonement and forgiveness. A faith that is moved based on how things, not based on how things are currently going in our lives, I want to say this, if you base your faith 
on whether your life is going great, then you are going to have very, 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 very shaky faith. I'll tell you why. Because the enemy, asked Job, can manipulate your circumstance like no other. It says the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. Guess what? All he has to do is get your boss hacked off and just get it in his craw about you. And if our faith is based on whether we have a good day or a good week, a good year, friends, our faith is going to be on very, very shaky ground. And we're going to be like these women initially. And we're going to say, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? But if we dare to believe that he is, that's what he said, he is the resurrection. He is the life that we need. And we trust him enough to die to ourselves and trust him enough that his life is better than ours. Then he will live his glorious life through us. I'm going to make a statement. Write this one down. This is a keeper. This is why I know this one didn't come from me. Dropped into me. Don't try to keep alive what God is trying to kill. Don't try to keep alive what God's trying to kill. They wanted Lazarus alive. God wasn't interested in him being alive. He puts off his, he wanted him dead. And those girls, if they could have changed it, they wanted him alive. Yeshua wanted him dead. Isn't that something? Makes me think. Are there things that I'm trying to keep alive that God wants to kill? And he wants to kill it because he wants to do something greater. I find this, that even the greatest men of faith think so small. We think so small, you know. God looked at 12 men and said, how about the world? How about the, the whole known world? They were saying, how about just the Jewish community in Jerusalem? And 2,000 and 3,000, right? And it's awesome. And God was saying, but what about the vast number of Gentiles and the nations? How about that? I close with this. Two more sentences. I am the resurrection and the life. 
Whoever, are you part of whoever? <laughs> whoever believes in me, even if he dies, shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Answer that question in your heart. Take it home with you. Do you believe this? Because if we do indeed believe, then when the stone of our struggle, pain and hardship and sorrow is rolled away, then we will come forth just like Lazarus and live well. If we believe when it's all said and done, we're going to come forth like Lazarus, better, filled with the resurrection life of the living God. I want to challenge you when you go home. Say, God, I want to be two things. I want to be dead to me and alive to you. God, I want to be a disciple that goes after you with all my being. I want to be transformed and changed. I want your life, not the life I've planned for myself. Amen? And I know this. He will not disappoint you. He will do, because this is what the scripture promises, exceedingly abundantly above all that you ever asked or thought. Remember that. God is good. Let's stand. Baruch Hashem. God is good. Life stinks. But God takes our stinky life and he fills it with the life of heaven. And that which was stinking and rotting becomes a sweet-smelling aroma unto the glory of God. So stretch forth your hand, and then we're going to go up. Please, please, please stay for coffee and a bagel. Yisar Adonai Panavilecha Yisimlecha Shalom May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his shalom. I want to end with this to tell you this. This is what God says of you. He loves you and you're awesome. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.